probably the singularly most motivating thing for me on like decade two plus of involvement in this work because I get restless, I have a lot of interest, but I'm doing in some ways a lot of the same thing I've been doing for 20 years. So it's like, what, what's still alive about it? I love, love, love watching how folks come and are like, oh, I want the, that's interesting, it's connective, I want the healing aspect of that, I'm, I'm drawn to it, it's shiny, I'll get it in my toolkit or whatever. So they're drawn for different reasons, well, no problem. And then as they hang out with the ancestral relationships, because the work is relational, what starts to happen is unpredictable interruptions in their conditioning of extreme individualism. It's fantastic to watch. Welcome back to the Sounds of Sand podcast. My name is Michael Riley. Today I'm in conversation with Daniel Four. Daniel is a ritualist and educator focused on helping others to reclaim their innate capacity to relate with their ancestors and with the greater web of other than human kin. And he's the author of the book Ancestral Medicine, Rituals for Personal and Family Healing, and an internationally respected teacher of ancestor reverence and ritual. Since 2004, Daniel has guided over 100 multi-day ancestor-focused healing rituals in eight courses, reached thousands of participants through personal sessions and online courses, and mentored over 150 practitioners to facilitate the work of ancestor healing. All today on the Sounds of Sand podcast, presented by Science and Non-Duality. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. All right, I'm here with Daniel Four on the Sounds of Sand podcast. Thanks so much for being here, Daniel. Thanks, Michael. It's, it's good to be here. Can you share what initially drew you to this practice of ancestral medicine and how it's transformed your own understanding of healing? Yeah, sure. Let me say a word. I know there's an introduction included, but let me just at least situate myself to say that I am down lineage from early German and English settler colonialist in North America, and that's where I've uh, grown up, and I, I now live in um, southern Spain in Andalusia near Granada with my wife and our two young daughters. And I say also that I'm, I wasn't raised with any kind of framework for spirituality really at all, which in a weird way was a kind of gift. And in my process of coming back into connection, it's been a combination of crashing around as a teenager with psychedelics and books on shamanism and then having the good fortune early in life and you know by age 20 to connect with living teachers in ritual that gave me a framework in how to just relate directly with the plants the animals the dead the gods spirit by whatever name and that was tremendous a tremendous gift it's like come back into relationship 
I'm like, oh, I will. I, I want that. So that was that was great. And from there, I went on to do a PhD in psychology and train as a psychotherapist and also spent some time sitting in, in Buddhist tradition and have been and continue to be in, involved with uh, Islam and Islamic Sufism. And so I've been a student of religion and spirituality, and I've uh, in that way eagerly um, taken the opportunity to... I guess, say, decolonize or um, question my own conditioning as an American white dude. And uh, that's included things like being an initiate in West African Orisha tradition. I'm a student of, uh, in the lineage of Oluwa Faladua Adesanya Woyade from uh, Ogun State in uh, Oderem on Ibadan. And um, so the Orisha, West African Orisha tradition is an important part of my path as well. But at the end of the day, I'm like also a regular person who just happens to seek to consciously relate with the earth and the dead and um, try to be a good dad and a good husband and an ethical ethical dude. So, uh, yeah, that's what I say by way of context where I'm coming from. Yeah, and, and so the, the work specifically with ancestors, did that arise organically or was that through, through yeah, your lineage? Yeah, for to- sure. That, that my first teachers in ritual arts in the late 90s encouraged me to connect with my own ancestors, which was a, a, just a new idea. And I, up until that point, saw my own family of origin as probably the least spiritual thing in the universe I could mm-hmm. think of. And uh, I just was in that sort of angry early 20s thing and um and it was it was very healing and corrective right from the start to recognize the beauty and earth connectedness and resourcing from my own lineages before the exporting of you know genocidal white supremacy to the americas before all of the rough uh centuries of colonialism from europe and from there, I just stuck with it. So I got to know my own different lineages through ritual arts, through genealogy, through investigating my own family history, talking to relatives, doing the psychological work that is related to all that, and also studying intact traditions of ancestor reverence from different traditions of shamanism or you know, even Dharma traditions and uh, West African Orisha practice and there's a lot. There's a lot of different ways with a lot of common understandings to them about how the living and the dead relate around the world. So I immersed myself in that and and started guiding others in that in 2004, 2005, just helping people with what I had pieced together myself. And you know, since then, I've trained almost 200 people to guide the work of ancestral healing and reconnection starting in 2016 or 17. It's also when the book came out. And so I've been, I've been at it in a focused way for about 20 years. And, and I've learned some things along the way about how ancestral healing also supports cultural change and also is one way to get at some of the systemic oppressions as they live within us, as they live within our lineages, etc. And so I'm, I continue to be nourished by the work. And it is exciting to me um, because of how intersectional it is between psychology, ritual arts, um, addressing culture and history and the need for systemic change. And um, yeah, so, so that's a little more context. Yeah, that what you're saying 
uh, resonates with me as well. I think we're probably around the same age and both, you know, grew up white Americans. And, um, yeah, then w- w- when you practice, you know, spirituality outside of maybe the Christian and Jewish context, it's like you, you leave the family, you leave the country and you look maybe to the East, you say, look to India or, or Asia, you know, for, for the wisdom traditions. And what you're saying is that, we can actually look into our own family lineages further back, you know, going back, 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 uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It is definitely the case that there are a lot of unrecognized treasures, blessings, inheritances from our ancestral lineages, even if the recent generations often have a lot of pain and disconnection involved. And it's important still to have practices Mm -hmm. and intact lineages of practice are uh, are critical for um, actually cultivating presence, having spiritual breakthrough and whatnot. It's part of what has led me to participate deeply in traditions that are not of my blood ancestry. And so participating in yogic traditions or Dharma traditions, for example, makes it's very pragmatic. It makes a ton of good sense. And interestingly, a lot of those traditions have very embedded intrinsic aspects of ancestor reverence to them, uh, whether it's South Asia, East Asia, and at times, certainly not always, but at times in the exporting or the translation of those ways to North America or Europe, other places, there can be a a problematic perception that honoring the ancestors is just local folklore, or it's not an intrinsic part of the Dharma or the path. And... um, I remember asking uh, Tenzin Wengo Rinpoche, as a Tibetan bone teacher in the United States, it was during a break for a workshop he was guiding, and I was asking him, if, do you all do ancestor reverence, or how do you, you know, is that a part of your practice? And it was a confusing question to him, I think, and I, so I repeated it, and his answer was something like, well, yeah, of course, of course we do that. And it was as if I had asked him if you brush your teeth mm-hmm. or something. And, and I, I didn't say it in the moment, but I, I, in retrospect, I wanted to say, you know, all these people in the room, they don't do that. Like, you know, like you're taking it as a matter of like communal relational hygiene mm-hmm. to make sure to tend to the dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not a given here. And so there are implications for that. There are people are sitting under generations of unmetabolized trauma mm-hmm. and spiritual interference and ghost illness because this aspect of hygiene, if you will, or relational care has broken down. And so in, in that way, a lot of what, I've, what I focus on with the ancestral work is uh, repair-oriented work with blood lineage ancestors because of the degree of impact they have on the living. And that uh, is not about adopting a new tradition or identity or belief system. It's from my view and from my lived experience of guiding thousands of people in the last 20 years through this type of stuff, um, it creates a, a bit of spaciousness from the trauma and the unmetabolized pain that we're often down lineage from that supports our involvement in whatever tradition or lack of tradition. Like partly we, we tend with the ancestors to get free from what's unhelpful about them and then to more consciously come into relationship with the ways that they are able to support us. Yeah, you mentioned trauma, so let's yeah. maybe stay with that for a moment. And um, 
so your belief is that this connection with our actual blood lineages is vital to uh, healing our personal and collective trauma. I do. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say that a few things that seem very, very cross-cultural about how the living and the dead to relate, to kind of present this as a foundation. One is that there's some continuity of consciousness after the death of the body. Mm-hmm. We're not only the body. And that can be one thing or multiple souls, or we can talk about it in many different ways. But the point is we're not only the body. And so the ancestors, in a sense, are all the consciousness that's been previously incarnate, but is not currently incarnate in this moment. It's our extended humanity that's not in, you know, having an, an, an earth walk at the moment. And a second principle is that not all the dead are equally well. Mm-hmm. Dying doesn't make you wise and kind and loving. It makes you not incarnate. Mm-hmm. Some among the dead are profoundly awake. And some among the dead are very tormented and full of hatred and malice. It's just like the living. The living run the full spectrum, so do the dead. A a related thing is that they can change. They're not frozen in state. The dead who are suffering can shift. And some of the stories of Avalokiteshvara about why they end up with so many arms, it's because they're responding again and again and again with compassion to the many beings in the hell realms and assisting them. And as Mm -hmm. soon as they assist a group, another group steps forward. And so layers and layers of compassion. So there's a, a lot of dead who suffer, but they can change. And that matters in how we view them. Because when you have a view that my family was so difficult and we freeze them in state and we don't allow for their continued evolution, then the healing process gets stuck and frozen uh, from both sides. And a fourth principle of five is that we can relate with them. And that isn't inherently any more spiritual than you and I talking right now. Mm -hmm. It's just relating. It's not a big deal. That relating is not inherently helpful or harmful. It's subject to misunderstanding, just like relating with other living humans. But it's a normal thing to relate with the dead. And finally, the level of impact between us and them really matters. And this speaks to your question that it's, from my view, it's not optional that we're impacted by our ancestors. What's optional is whether or not that's going to be conscious or unconscious. And having it be unconscious isn't always bad. Some people have a very successful, ethical, lovely, fulfilled life and enjoy a lot of unconscious ancestral blessing. It's nice to be able to turn around and say, hey, thanks to my people. I appreciate you having my back. But it's not imperative, always. The more important thing is that you have a fulfilled ethical life. But if you're suffering, as many people do, from unconscious intergenerational influence, the advantage, of course, to bringing it conscious is that you can, you can work with it. You can disidentify from them a bit and help to resolve that. But the, so those are some core principles. And going beyond that, I would say that the conditioning that I received, and I know that is increasingly prevalent in the world, is a conditioning of extreme individualism mm-hmm. that, that really reinforces the idea that I'm a, a, a person, a separate, isolated person. And there's an element of truth to that, but it's also very incomplete truth. I'm the face of my lineages, I'm an expression of the earth, I'm a product of my culture, of my conditioning, I'm the soul imprints that have incarnated in this particular body, and all kinds of other things. 
right? And so the way in which I was trained as a therapist to try to help people to suffer less is a training that by and large reinforces individualism mm -hmm. by suggesting that people's suffering is their personal suffering. And therefore, we should approach it in personal ways and to personally resolve it. When most of it is systemic, it's a function of sexism and racism and exploitative capitalism and other economic systems and colonialism and earth disconnection and bigotry and uh, you know, just other ways that humans suffer and then pass that along. And so most of what we're dealing with in terms of mental, emotional health and cultural pain is, is group level, systemic, intergenerational stuff. Mm. And, and if we take the full relational implications of that, what we're really saying it's an ancestral is that it's an ancestral mess. Hmm. It's not an inanimate like field of energy. It's a bunch of ghosts mm -hmm. playing out like stuck in the same dream of confusion. It's part of what makes systemic change work so difficult is we're working often when we're trying to change systems and bless everybody doing that may it be totally successful. Um, we're working to change the, the outer manifestation of it, but it's, there's ghosts like baked into the systems. It's the human creations. And if we don't ancestralize or assist or heal up the troubled dead, the, um, the, the problematic systems end up being very resilient and they'll, they'll uh, reconstitute themselves because we haven't really gotten to the underlying essence of the problem. Yeah, I, I love how you're animating so many different vectors, I'll say, in this. It's sort of uh, multidimensional because, yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned capitalism and systems that we're, we're alive in. And one of them, especially from the American context, is to always be looking to the future. It's always about innovation. It's, ne it's never about turning around. It's always about looking, and, you know, this is probably rooted in this whole like manifest destiny, all these sort of philosophies of, of the new world of, of the United States. And when you're, so when you're talking about an, animating these various, you know, coming into relation with, with things that we assume are stuck, like the people that are dead, they're, they're cold, you know, gravestones in the ground, basically, like they're not alive. You're describing animism basically, right? Like an expansion and an inclusion sure. of animism. I'm definitely an animist and work from that. Could you uh, define animism values. a bit for the listeners who are not maybe familiar with how you're using that term? Yeah, sure. It's a it's a nerdy academic way of referring to a set of core values that basically says humans aren't the center of the universe only, and that uh, so it's it's a way of affirming like you could say the opposite to human supremacy or anthropocentrism and the person that i'm drawing on most is graham harvey's work who's a lovely person a british pagan scholar and you know just a gentleman nice person and um 
he is drawing on Irving Hollowell's work, who's drawing from time spent with Ojibwe people in Native North American cultural context. So, but the way Graham would speak to it would be something like, uh, the world is full of persons. Not all of these people are human people, but all of them are worthy of respect and consideration. And so that we're, uh, the, the best way to reach for it in English is a language of personhood. And legally, there's good work to be done to say, well, rivers are people, mountains are people, the animals, the plants, the dead, the deities are different kinds of people. Even so-called objects are children of the human and the elements and have uh, warrant their own kind of respect. And what th that view is often pro projected onto, not inaccurately, but in a complex way onto Native North American people by white settlers in North America. And um, sure, many Native North American tribal nations have what you could describe as animist values uh, traditionally, but those values are not unique to any one group on earth. The relational values are also part of uh, European history and you know, to some degree still in certain places, and they're core human values of relationship that decenter uh, humans. And we're still lovely and sacred, we're just not the only ones with personhood or consciousness. Mm. And, and that sounds sort of esoteric and weird and interesting, but what's interesting to me about it is that uh, the ethical implications. If we take that to heart, the legal and political and economic systems on earth must change. They're profoundly irresponsible and unethical. They need to center the voices of the rivers and the stars and the dead and the fungi and the many different kinds of people who we, whose voices we don't often include. That needs to be part of regular, normal education. It's not an inherently religious thing. It's an ethical thing. Just as not being a racist isn't a religious thing, it's an ethical thing. Mm. And so uh, when animism gets pigeonholed into a spiritual religious thing, it can be that, but that's problematic because this Western secular commitment to secular attitudes will immediately marginalize it and make it less radical and less useful as mm -hmm. a stance. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm an animist, sure. And I think that psychology and education and our economic system should be animist as well in yeah. a way that's very, um, not necessarily religious, but just relational. Hmm. Yeah. Well, legally there's, uh, perhaps a precedent and you probably know that corporations are considered people in, in yeah, U.S. law. I, it's true. I, I used to have a big objection to that, but my view has shifted. They are people. They're just irresponsible growth oriented people that, need more responsible people to keep them in check and so they can do what they're going to do within a limited range. So it's not that they're not people. They, uh, that The extending of personhood to corporations makes sense if we extend a seniority and personhood to the forests and the beetles and the weather and all those other things. It's been my preoccupation is how do we re-adopt and embody animist values. The ancestor work is a specialization. I love it. I feel equipped to help people in that. But it's within a larger umbrella of animist values and coming back into relationship. Mm. I think it's uh, really imperative. 
on Earth at this time. I mean, we're, we're, we have invoked as a single species ecological catastrophe. Right. And the once you come into a more relational stance with it, the emotional implications have it go from extreme to really super extreme. Like, oh, it's not just things we're harming. We're harming whole other cultures and communities who are not human. Mm-hmm. So how do we shift that as soon as we can? Yeah. You know, kindly, urgently, and relationally. Yeah. Yeah, and I think your, your framing of... of a, uh, an animated animation of dealing with um, dead ancestors as alive that also opens up future ancestors. You know, we're we're ancestors to future generations, and so to stop thinking so um, short term. You know, in terms of how how we use uh, how we relate to the resources of these planets to to think about deep time and what are you know what are we leaving to our children. It's true. We're not, um, I don't tend to think of the descendants as a different category. They're just the ancestors who haven't returned yet. And time in that way, as you were sharing earlier, is not so linear. I read recently of um, William Shatner, who's the actor who plays the um, famous uh, Captain Kirk in Star Trek. But he's he's elderly now. I think he's in his 90. But he got to take a trip into space, mm-hmm. finally. And he had a expectation of how it might be for him, that it would be this expansive, hopeful thing. But he found that he was um, profoundly sad. And really, um, that he realized that he had participated in this sort of manifest destiny, uh, expansionist view when Earth really is our home. And there's so much sorrow and injustice here. And like with the enormity of space in in the window, he was just struck by it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, look at you being an elder. Good for you. Yeah. Like, and, uh, and way to like move the attention back, especially as an elder white American dude, to move it back toward grief. Yeah. And being with and companioning with companioning all the loss happening right now. Nice. And holding the world together in that way. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Captain Kirk. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, so earlier you were talking about the specific practices um, of, of your work, your ancestor work. You were talking about, um, you know, lineage research for, I guess, more recent ancestors um, but could you talk about some of the practices around the, connecting with uh, ancestors that are beyond? Yeah, uh, yeah sure. There's kind of um, two facets to it. One is is how to do the thing, and then what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'll speak to the how part. In a sense, there are, there are lots of practices that can help us to shift into an awareness that supports direct relating with the spirits, with the others, with it's not the the ritual tech isn't that different from what helps you to speak with the trees or with the spirit of the land where you're at or a certain deity. It's about what helps you to get into a state of stillness, of listening, trusting your intuition. And that could be more intense things like fasting or depth meditation or psychoactives or intense rigorous practice like dance or something or it could just be a shift of attention 
like repetitive uh, drumming or trance kind of music is one way. There's, there's lots of different ways to be in a state that supports listening. And it doesn't have to even be a different state. It's very, for a lot of people who relate with spirits as a normal thing, it's, you're not in a shifted state of consciousness. It's possible to go there, but really you're just, you're just listening. It's a shift of, you know, it's a different, um, someone else is speaking to you. And in terms of what to do or how to orient within that, the basic methodology that we follow with the ancestral lineage healing work, which is what's detailed in the book, it's what's in the online course, it's what the practitioners are trained to guide, it's what I do in the in-person intensives. And so it's very consistent through different settings. Um, but the five steps are to first assess what's going on with your lineages in an intuitive way, like how are they? Like, how's my grandmother and the lineage of women before her in spirit right now? Are they at peace? Are they quite troubled? Something other than that. So just be curious how it already is. And then set a boundary where needed with the dead who are not yet at peace, so they're not up in your space. At no point do I ever seek personally, train others to, or encourage people to relate with the dead who are not yet at peace. Mm. And so there's a strong distinction between the ancestors who are safe to relate with, and the ghosts, the troubled dead, the not yet ancestors, who we wish to assist, but we don't relate with directly, at least in the, it's possible, but it's not recommended for how I approach it. And so the first thing is what's going on and set a boundary. And the second step is to seek to connect with much older ancestral guides or teachers on whatever your lineage of focus is. So let's say you were to do the assessment and you're like, okay, I'm, I want to connect with my ancestral grandmothers. And so you envisioning space, which doesn't have to be a big deal, you might connect with ones who lived 1,000, 2,000 years ago. Might not be that far back, depending on when was the last time in your lineages where your people fit the description of what you would think of with healthy indigenous culture. It might just be a few generations ago, or it might be... 2,000 years. In any case, time is weird, and you just tune in with them directly. They're accessible, especially the ones who are well. And that is the second step of coming into direct conscious relationship with the ancestral guides. And the third and fourth step is basically to partner with them to heal up what's between them and you on the lineage. And the first part of that, the third step in the process, is to work with the older dead, the ones who lived after them, but before remembered names. And then the fourth step is to work with the, the really the most recent dead, mm -hmm. like your mother, your grandmother, her mother. Mm -hmm. But the sense is that you're ask, we're asking the older ancestors to bring healing to the lineage. The, the focus is not primarily the well-being of the living person engaging in this work. It's the healing up of the lineage that comes before them. From the older ones toward the present, so you're restore, restoring like the health, the structural integrity of the lineage as a whole. And by the time you get to caring for your grandmother, you've made sure that her mother and all the women before her are deeply at peace and they're receiving her. And then your grandmother and all the ones before her would be the ones to receive your mother if she's passed. Once all the ones who have preceded you in death on the lineage are at peace, the last step is to personally allow that more healed and integrated lineage to bless your life, your bones, your blood, your DNA, to let them 
empower you and gently reorganize you to be a face of the lineage more consciously to be an extension of their love and their specific gifts in the world mm-hmm. at that point the healing along that line is not necessarily needed anymore you've moved from ancestral repair into more of a maintenance of relationship mode mm-hmm. so the intent of the lineage healing work is to get out of ancestral deficit and just into a place of relating easily with them which is where folks who didn't break their culture tend to start at because there's not an intergenerational mess to clean up yeah beautiful that so, that yeah. system yeah, so, feels very supportive <laughs> and one analogy that's coming to mind cuz often with genealogy we think of the family tree and it's like if our tree was diseased, we wouldn't start with the leaves and say, okay, what's wrong with the leaves or the branches? We would go to the roots and we would say, what's wrong with the soil? What's wrong with the roots? You know, That's right. Yeah, yeah it's like that. And it's one thing I enjoy about it as well. And there's a lot of folks with a mental health background, for example, who come to what me and folks in the network are guiding. And it sometimes can be a new thing for them to work in a way that isn't about personal effort. Like this is not primarily inner work. This is systems work. You're you're addressing the larger field of things you're connected to. And it definitely has the byproduct of personal reverberation and, and harnessing that. That can be inner work. But through healing up the ancestral field that we're connected to, in which is relational work, there's secondarily personal and family benefit. And so that way of working is a different frame uh, for a lot of people. And also letting the ancestors drive the process. We don't need to know what's needed. We connect with the elders and we say, hey, we have a problem, please help. They're like, oh, we thought you'd never ask. We're happy to help. And, And then we follow their lead with it. So that way of working requires less effort and can be disorienting to people who have trained in healership in ways that focus on personal effort. That's not how we get the best results. And it's asking the elders to bring remedy. And in that way, it's such, it's such a delight and an honor and a privilege for me as someone of a, a cultural background that has enacted such harm in the world with European settler colonialism to be in a role of supporting people of like radically diverse ancestries to come into relationship with their own ancestors. And what works about that is that it's their ancestors guiding the process. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not me guiding it. I'm like, the sooner I can get out of the way, the better. And, and But to support that reconnection between living humans and their people, it's a delight. And so, yeah, we're, we're going to the elders directly and asking them to, to step in and intervene. And they will. There's a lot of um, urgency right now because of the amount of loss that's happening on the planet.
thing I love about this is how it feels very democratic because often we uh, are are taught to go to the special ancestors, so the saints and the deities yeah. and the, the the special people. You know, Saint Anthony, he's the only one who's going to help you find that lost your lost keys. You know, or right. or to pray to these yeah to these deified people basically. I find that the more well we can be with our personal ancestors, the more we can participate responsibly in traditions that are not of our blood lineage. Mm -hmm. And the more like chanting the names of the Dharma lineage makes sense now. Oh, there's a spiritual lineage. I see how this works because I know that I'm part of a blood lineage. It's a different kind of spiritual lineage. So in, in that way, we have our own like blood dharma lineage, each of us. And, and some of us uh, are down lineage, many of us, uh, from a condition of disrepair or like a lack of tending, a lack of uh, uh, care in that way. And what can be beautiful about engaging for a period of time at least with blood ancestors is that we come to see awakening or non-duality or the sacred, the big, like, ground of being with a face like our face mm. and that it's not there's not uh it's harder to idealize tibetans when you see awakening in the face of your european grandpas mm. it's harder as a you know african-american to 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 see that oh okay the yogic traditions are very awake but my own ancestors it's only suffering mm -hmm. but when you see the, the profoundly awake uh, West African grandmas and grandpas like smiling back at you. There's like, oh, that same, like they are chilling with Patanjali and all like this. It's a council of elders uh, that is um, also wears our face. Mm -hmm. And that's culturally healing. And it'll, it'll root out low cultural low self-esteem. Right. Or, or supremacy thinking, which is just an ugly, or it's an ugly form of low self-esteem, of thinking that one's ancestors are better than somebody else's. I'll say uh, one, one, other, one other thing comes to mind in this moment, which is um, it's been interesting in the last decade, especially to see the ancestral healing become popular in the West. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very embedded uh, thing in, for much of the world, for indigenous cultures or a lot of traditional African spirituality or East Asian spirituality, etc. So it's a very, it's like nothing new about it. Um, but it's been my impression that the spirituality, psychology, different cultural, um, you know, the voices also of indigenous and earth honoring teachers percolating in, in combination has meant that a lot of folks who weren't raised with any framework for ancestor reverence are like, wait a minute, I'm missing a piece. This is a good mm -hmm. element to somehow bring in. And that's great. That, that alone is a really great development. And at times, not always, but at times, there, what I observe is there can be a way of viewing the ancestors in a still kind of objectifying way, meaning like they're a thing, they're a force. I need, to, I need to resolve this ancestral influence. I don't want to actually relate with the ancestors right. or be in sustained relationship with them. I just want to resolve their influence. And, or I want to like make sure I'm living my ancestral gifts. I don't really want to relate with them. I just want to live those gifts. 
And it's not inherently bad, but there's a um, when it comes to ritual engagement with the dead, people sometimes have the sense of like, well, it's kind of edgy and dangerous. Uh, to which I would say, it is. It is. It is as unsafe as relating with the living. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some among the living are very unsafe to relate with. Definitely. And in that way, it's important to not be unnecessarily afraid, but to use a, a sensible amount of, of discernment when seeking to directly reconnect with the ancestors. And even just saying, I only wish to relate with those among my people who are wise and kind and loving and safe for me to relate with. May all the others be well, but I only at this time feel able and open to relating with those who are really quite safe. Just that basic level of discernment can go a long way for people who are improvising ancestral reconnection. So, you know, the way I've seen my role is to provide some upfront basic ritual tech that's accessible, that people can learn relatively quickly and adapt to the point where they're in direct relationship with their own ancestral elders, at that point, they become the guide. Like, it's like, you, you're, you're good to go from here. The channel of direct guidance is open. Roll mm-hmm. with it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, the, the role of ritual and ceremony. And if at a certain point, like, for example, right now, as we're speaking, like, do you feel your ancestors present in you? Or is it something that's only accessible in this sort of ritual ceremonial state? As soon as you ask it, it becomes more present in my awareness. I, yeah, so it's possible to turn attention toward them. It's possible that certain questions bring their presence or laughter forward more. I have a funny, I imagine you'll um, get what I mean is, uh, from the non-duality perspective. I have a sort of ambivalent relationship with all the stuff around ritual and ceremony mm-hmm. um, because it it's both very important to um, create the conditions for reconnection and different kinds of states and experiences. And there's a risk that it creates its own duality or its own confusion because it creates the category of not ritual, not ceremony in the sense of like, you know, in the beginning things are just, you know, mountains are mountains, rivers are rivers. And there's this long intermediate, intermediate period where nothing's like what it seems at all. And then eventually if everything turns out well, mountains get to be mountains again and rivers are rivers. But that first station and the third one, they look similar on the outside, but they're quite different. Mm-hmm. And in that way, uh, it's all ritual. It's all ceremony. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to look like anything on the outside so much. However, uh, spending a cycle of time finding one's own way in with ritual tech and ceremony and, and really j- relationship with the other than humans and with the spirits, I think is really beneficial when it hasn't been part of our recent conditioning or learning. I think there's a lot to be learned from there. And there's a lot of interrupting of the confusion that we're only our body. Mm -hmm. So we get habituated to seeing the physical world as a sort of malleable skin over a much bigger reality. And that's useful. That's helpful. And it orients us well 
to dying because we'll need to navigate well what happens after death. And of course, the ancestors are they're great for preparing for that. So like, oh yeah, you know, we we got you, no worries. Mm -hmm. So there's a, it kind of drains a lot of the fear out of death in a way that allows us to just live here. Yeah. But no, it, it, ritual, ceremony, all that, it's, it's case by case. It's a style thing, I guess. The important thing is that we're actually coming back into relationship mm -hmm. and, and that we're, we're already in relationship, but we could say more accurately that we're, we're bringing conscious the existing relational web in which we're embedded in a way that allows us to be more respectful and reality-based and mindful. And did you find your relationship with your ancestors changed when you had children? So when you kind of took that leap into the next, okay, I'm creating. <laughs> yeah. 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 For, for one, I had less time to focus on the dead per se. Right. <laughs> oh my goodness, kids. And uh, I also came to understand in a really embodied way how um, being a good parent or caregiver for young ones is ancestor reverence. It is, uh, you know, changing my great, great times 10 grandma's diaper. And, and it is um, that they are the face of the dead returned. And that's lovely. And it's strange and demanding all at once. I, um, so yeah. And, you know, the, uh, another benefit personally to having kids and being a parent. There's a lot of them, uh, but one of them is that it has me even more attached and bonded and entangled with the world. Any part of me that would want to be a little bit interdimensionally dissociated and tranced out and all the other ways, I mean, I can still do that occasionally, but the girls are like, hey, you need to be here right now. I need you. And that's great because our uh, it's easy to be awake under friendly conditions, mm -hmm. easier at least. The challenge is to bring that um, presence and expansiveness into the density of this world and into the heaviness and into the sleepless, chaotic, tantruming reality of parenthood and things like it. Um, that's the where our character really um, is ground down and new things become possible. So, so yeah, uh, I've um, grown a ton from from being a parent. I, I I like to reach for an example from my teacher in um, in Nigeria about the intergenerational piece because it's a question a lot of folks have. What about past lives? You know, do we come back? All that. But when I was first in Nigeria in 2013 for my initiation to Ifa priesthood, uh, my teacher, Luofalalu, his um, father, who was a very senior awake dude, had just passed. So they were doing the funeral practices for him. And then I came back six months later, and uh, my teacher and his wife had had a, a, a child, a baby boy. And through the divination rituals that are typically done, it was determined that that was the spirit of the grandfather who had just recently passed, reincarnating. And everyone was happy about it. They're like, oh, great, welcome back. And in subsequent conversations with my teacher, I'm like, oh, well, this, uh, just to be clear, the fact that this is your grandfather returning, that doesn't mean 
that you stop honoring your grandfather in spirit or relating with him in spirit directly? He's like, no, of course not. And it doesn't mean that your son is now going to boss you around because it's your grandfather, right? He's like, no, Baba, of course not. <laughs> like, it's not going to go like that. And, uh, and so he's saying, basically, it, th there's no contradiction there. It's as if a dipper from the same stream was poured into a new form. But, but the river isn't diminished. So we can be ancestors returned. We can still honor the dead. Time is not linear the soul is not just one thing and and so the the part of us who would need to make sense of all that is good to have a really um, pragmatic relational vibe around it I would like to explore a little further is this idea of the ancestors, both the well and unwell ancestors, uh, sort mm -hmm. of living out through us. And um, yeah. Yeah. One, one, I don't know, this is some, I don't know why this is coming to mind, but there, you know, there's this like take a cold shower movement thing happening with like people say it's good for you and it, all this stuff. And I always right. think like, how angry would my great 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 grandparents be that I have access to hot water in my shower and I'm taking cold showers when they've been bathing in ice cold streams their whole life? Like, what an insult! So, I don't know why, right. why I thought of that, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I could, I would say, as a as someone who's worked as a therapist, if I draw my psychology background. I would say that well over half, most of what shows up in therapy, most of our suffering is not personal, it's intergenerational. Mm -hmm. It's, and I would say of that, uh, it, like it's systemic, it's intergenerational, a lot of it's family lineage, intergenerational. And people like the psychology field wouldn't necessarily argue with that. They're like, sure, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. Um, but what I would say is a lot of that is direct ghost interference, mm -hmm. meaning like it's one thing to have an unresolved pattern that, can, that continues to repeat within us. And it will repeat if we don't resolve it. And the resolving of it typically looks like going deeper than that pattern, which started before your life, and understanding what the unexpressed blessings are and what's the antidote to it? You can't replace something with nothing. Like people in addiction know that it's not usually the most effective way to be like, I'm just going to stop drinking and not do make any other changes in any other way. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to replace something with uh, nothing. It doesn't work as well. And so what do we replace the harmful pattern with? We have to understand what the ancestral gifts are and live them and manifest them. And to really understand what those are, it's very efficient to just ask the ancestors what they are because they're waiting to help. And additionally, it's possible that the dead have not left and that it's direct 
like like your grandmother died, your partner died, your great grandmother died, whatever, and you have the instance of the ghost, the spirit of that person around you, or actually drawing on your physical vitality. This is a very normal and recognized thing cross culturally of ghost interference, and I've seen it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over the last two decades that that somebody feels some kind of density or whatever, and then the rituals are done. So their grandfather is actually welcomed to the realm of the ancestors finally. And then the physical condition clears up mm-hmm. or they just feel a lot better. They're like, oh, that was it. That was the thing that the therapy didn't get at. It, got, it set the conditions for that, but the psychotherapy didn't have the worldview to actually assist my grandfather who was still here drawing on my energy. So sometimes it's direct ghost interference. Like if you went to the doctor and you're like, I got a, like a pain on my neck. I don't know what it is. And there's a big like vampire bat stuck to your neck. And they were like, well, do you want to talk about it? Or when did it start? And if they don't notice the bat, it's a, I mean, respect to vampire bats, you know, not judging them. But like, but like it would be a miss on the part of the medical professional to not be like, oh, you, you have a giant a parasitic mammal on your neck, and, and so and so the uh, like it looks that way to me with ghost interference. Right, I'm like, D- dudes, the the person is saying they're upset about their mom. They felt really unwell since their mom died. They still dream about her. She seems unhappy. She's still there. She's a ghost. You got to help her along. Like she just needs help. There's nothing. It doesn't have to be spiritual or religious. You don't have to believe in it. Like you don't have to believe in ibuprofen. You just take it. Mm. And so in that way, it's, it's really about what is going to assist the dead who are not yet at peace to make their way and when needed, disentangle from the living so that we can have a little more breathing room to do what we need to do. And, and then beyond that, the, the longer term work of resolving the intergenerational trouble and patterns which of course continue to repeat through the systems. Mm-hmm. The, the stuck systems recreate fresh trauma. So uh, there's no, like the most efficient way to get at all the psychological pain that's happening is to fix the very unjust systems in the world that create the fresh trauma and pain. But, you know, we need to work at all the levels, the kind of spiritual, psychological, systemic, Yeah, and and the, I guess the flip side is also true, right? So the the, the you know the, the great leaps that we p- perhaps make personally, and all of the gifts that we have, you know, talents and joys that we bring into the world, can also be a manifestations of the well ancestors, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And a- any spiritual tradition I've uh, had any participation in recognizes that. Whether or not they explicitly focus in that language of ancestor reverence per se, in in the daily salat or prayer with Islam, there's always some type of salawat or praise to Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Or in the Dharma lineages, there's a recognition, even if it's just directly the Buddha or the people in your specific lineage of practice or the bodhisattvas. There's a recognition that the awakening spirit. Or the the our peak potential as humans has been manifest through other women and men and 
beautifully genderqueer people before us, and that if we look to their example, it can be a way of activating that within ourselves. And some of those awake people are undoubtedly in our blood lineages. Now, it's, it's possible if one's family was really dense or abusive or heavy to be like, oh, there's nothing good there. Mm -hmm. I, like I looked at my ancestors, I don't see it's it's very unspiritual thing there. It's just pain all the way down. Well, it's, you know, in a respectful way, it's an irrational conclusion because you're basically, you're standing at the beach and you're looking at the part that you can see. Maybe you see like 10, 20 kilometers away from the beach on a clear day. And even so, you don't know what's happening like a thousand kilometers away from the water or away from the beach. You just, you can't see that far. You can't say the way my people have been for the last 10 generations definitely defines them for the last 10,000 years. And so we, in that way, benefit from having a more expanded sense of what's meant by ancestry. And there are many pathways in to the collective wisdom of our species, but all of us have at least one in. And it's the, the in, the on-ramp through our blood and our body and our bones, through these bodies. Hmm. And so that in that way, I see ancestral healing as a kind of body practice or somatic practice. And um, well, we can hold it in lots of ways, but it's we're working to affirm the holiness of this body. And that's useful because there's a lot of cultural messaging and low self-esteem and oppressive stuff that leads people to feel all kinds of ways about their culture of origin. So we need to know awakening by whatever name in the context of our very specific life and lineages. Yeah, that's where it's going to feel most authentic and take deepest root. Yeah. And it feels expansive in a personal way too, because it's it's kind of expanding the idea of the self to include all of these previous generations. And it feels less feels like there's less weight on our shoulders almost. Like we just we're just the, the current incarnation of this, you know, this organism that stretched back thousands of years and you know uh, That's right. Yeah. That that's been the thing that has probably the singularly most motivating thing for me on like decade two plus of involvement in this work because I get restless. I have a lot of interest, but I'm doing in some ways a lot of the same thing I've been doing for 20 years. And so like what, what's still alive about it? I love, love, love watching how folks come and are like, Oh, I want the, that's interesting. It's connective. I want the healing aspect of that. I'm, I'm drawn to it. It's shiny. I'll get it in my toolkit or whatever. So they're drawn for different reasons. No problem. And then as they hang out with the ancestral relationships, because the work is relational, what starts to happen is unpredictable interruptions in their conditioning of extreme individualism. <laughs> and it, uh, it's fantastic to watch. Because it is a, it's the the root of what I I despise, frankly, yeah. about the United States as a as a political entity. Uh, you know, my feelings are complicated about things, but but that particular kind of conditioning I, I find to be very harmful. And uh, 
And being able to get at that and participate and in interrupting that is really, really nice. It's very satisfying. It's a relief, as you said, to recognize like, oh, all this suffering that I thought was my particular suffering and shortcomings um, is systemic. That's oddly reassuring. Oh, wait a minute. You mean I can't take credit for every right. good thing I do? Yeah. Well, yeah. you, you can, but it's just a little dishonest. Right. <laughs> yeah, it just feels like a whole new support system to, to you know, if you're trying to cure an addiction or uh, something, to reach back and talk to the ancestors, and then they may, maybe they can communicate with each other and say, "Hey, great grandma, you know, Michael's dealing with addiction too. You know, maybe you can. Do you have any advice for him?" And then they pass it down the line, and then. You should That's try right. this. It That's, worked for me. <laughs> maybe maybe you need to quit drinking through his body. Be yeah. like, oh, okay. Let's set out the whiskey on the altar instead. Yeah. It's nice. good. Yeah. 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 Good. Good. this a lot but what about epigenetics so this idea that we're yeah because a lot of what you're describing i think people can understand it through the frame of genetics that you know if i have rashy skin you know i didn't bring that on myself it's just my genetics um so yeah yeah, just for sure yeah so you know not so long ago there wasn't even a recognition of neuroplasticity or that the, the brain and the nervous system can change and now the the leading science is like, well, actually, sorry, it's more malleable than we thought. And then with epigenetics, there's a recognition, which is great, that there's intergenerational influence, whether or not we consciously know what happened before, that those imprints, those genetic markers, get switches get turned on and off and patterns get activated based on the condition of our our, our recent and even more distant ancestors. And of course, that includes uh, ancestral gifts and helpful capacities as well. And what becomes interesting then is, well, how do you work with it? And so the, the science is like, yes, this is happening. This is exciting. It's happening. Like, agree. So what are you going to do about it? And what a lot of people have already been doing for a long time about it is to make sure that the dead themselves are well and make sure that we are embodying directly the vitality and healing goodness from them. And that that is a way of optimizing the variable aspects of our genome in this body during this life, of making sure that they're well. It's Because what will happen is we can get stuck in the story of their suffering while they were on earth and that's an important part of the story. There's no minimizing of that. But it's important to also relate with them now in the present. They're not defined by who they were any more than we're defined by who we were when we were 15 or something. People change. They continue to change. Um, and so the important thing is that the basic message of the emergent field of epigenetics gets put into practice. And how do we work with it? So it means there's genetic plasticity, mm-hmm. uh, which is cool and interesting and something we ought to put into practice in a hopeful way. Not in an unreasonably 
unrealistic way, but in a, in a way that encourages people to be real agents in their well-being. I would say also that the reality of epigenetics makes a strong case, a stronger case for reparations, for histories of enslavement, of occupation of land, of, of, of just generational harm inflicted from one group onto another group. Because it says very clearly the living descendants of those people who were even more directly harmed are absolutely going to experience in this life the stresses and the body level disadvantages from the oppressive behavior that occurred hopefully just in the past. If, you know, if it's ongoing, then it needs to be spoken to on that level. But it... Um, it strengthens the case for making, for, for accepting responsibility for the choices of our ancestors. We can't say, I, I embody the blessings and gifts of my people and let's say my ancient European witchy grandmothers, I love them, they're so great. And that's great. And as soon as you uh, eat, you know, take a bite from that apple, Mm -hmm. The other medicine you just got is you accepted that the intergenerational debts of your people are your personal debts. And that's great news. It means you have more leverage to participate in cultural healing than you previously did. Because mm -hmm. it's personal now. It's not abstract. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, the, the epigenetic research and all that, I think it's it's fundamentally hopeful. The main thing is great, let's put it into practice. Mm -hmm. What do we do with it? Mm -hmm. I wonder who would know, oh, it's the ancestors. They actually are dreaming up these bodies. They, they know about stuff. They're, they're specialists in the human experience. And we're talking about the human ancestors. And so the, we can think of them as the collective wisdom of the species. So we bring it to them and let them guide what unfolds next. Yeah, and my final question is in line with this idea of like, how do we um, get started on this path, and what are what are some recommendations? And obviously, I recommend people read your book and connect with you on your website with the workshops you're doing. And the question is more, I guess, geared towards an American audience who um, are the descendants of of white colonial settlers or African di diaspora. How important? Or do you recommend for people to, to try to connect uh, with the land in this work, to actually go back, if they can, if they have the means, to the physical land where they came from? Yeah, I'll say a few things about it. Um, the only thing I would add about ways to step into the practice is to know that there's currently over 100 people offering the work in mm -hmm. probably 20 nations, 15 languages, from all different kinds of ancestral backgrounds at this point. So that's something in my life that I feel really um, proud about and humbled by the, the practitioner network. So I would recommend connecting for direct session work, including the option for low-income sessions in, in lots of different languages. There's something about someone else holding space for you. Not to, to They're not tuning in with your ancestors. They're holding space for you to reconnect with your own people safely. That way of spending time with other humans is really nice. And so there's that option. Uh, in terms of, is the work especially helpful or indicated for people who are living outside of their ancestral homeland, whether it's through enslavement, migration, fleeing or refugee status, or, you know, harmful ways of moving around? Yeah, 
because I, I, I do think it's uh, in some ways especially helpful because if you're living in your place of ancestral homeland, not always, but often there's a sense of unconscious, already available connection that you're just drawing on because mm-hmm. you're near to where your people are in the earth. And, and so it's, I've seen a lot of people in that circumstance not understand why uh, African diaspora folks or European settlers and whether it's Australia or South Africa or mm-hmm. North America are so neurotic. It's like, what is going on? Like y'all are struggling in ways that we are not. I don't understand it. And it being away from the field of support where your people are in the earth causes one sense of belonging to be less straightforward and more shaky in some ways. And the having generations of human dead in the earth does facilitate a land connection more quickly. It can be cultivated even if you're not living in that place ancestrally, but it takes a little more work and attention. And it typically involves getting your own lineage ancestors well and then inviting them into more conscious dialogue with the stones and the dead who are there and the the people who are already there, right? And um, in that way, I I would just add that it's not, it's rarely going to be economically feasible and uh, viable for people to make pilgrimages to, you know, West Africa or Europe or other, you know, places where people have immigrated from. If you can, great. But it's also possible to go deep with your own ancestors right where you're at and not have to burn the fossil fuel of going to those other places. Mm-hmm. You could go to those other places and totally spiritually miss the point. Right. Or you could go deep right where you're at. But if, if you're spiritually connected already, you've tapped into them, and they're like, hey, why don't you do this pilgrimage? It'll be great. And you have the means to do it. Of course, that can be really powerful as well. So, you know, the main thing I don't want to convey about that is that it's needed mm-hmm. or that, because um, from the ancestors' point of view, imagine they've been wanting to reconnect for generations. And now someone's finally open but they're like, oh, I need to wait five years to save up for a ticket to right. go somewhere. And they're like, oh, my goodness, we're right here. We just want to talk. Mm-hmm. So uh, just to know it's, it's straightforward to mm-hmm. connect with them. Okay. And it doesn't have to be that complicated. Yeah. And not everyone's going to be able to afford the travel. No problem. Yeah. Yeah, so sorry, I kind of packaged, uh, I guess, the closing question in that previous question. You were, you were saying there's a large network of people to... Uh, offer this kind of work, ancestral medicine, um, as a as a way for people to connect. You know, I recommend your book as well as a starting point. But um, basically, just go into a search engine and look for ancestral healing and and see, find some. Yeah, water. I would say ancestralmedicine.org is the website, and mm-hmm. and there, if you f- do the find a practitioner, look for the practitioner directory. Okay, there are listings for all the different people there. Great. And the book itself has been translated into maybe eight or so languages so far. And yeah, so there's a lot of teachings, a lot of offerings there. It's all through ancestormedicine.org. And what I I would say is reconnection doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't require adopting a new belief system or even any particular practices. And it's about being a more full 
version of yourself. Mm. We, we have a moral obligation to be ourselves on a deep soul level and to do what we're here to do. And coming back into relationship with the ancestors in a healing way or with the earth and the many beings supports that remembering. Mm. And we'll be better for it. Our death will go more smoothly. We'll have an easier debrief with the old powers after death if we have lived well. And so coming back into relationship, it is not something that needs to be scary necessarily. It's, it's good. And with all the crisis and turmoil on track to continue for at least a few centuries here on earth, it is really important to be moving in a relational way because there's a lot of things lit up. Hmm. And if we want to be in touch with the sweetness of life, it's, it's, it's important to find any way to be tapped in. Hmm. Beautiful. Nice. Well, thank you so much for your time and all these offerings today. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Daniel. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, everybody listening. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content, available exclusively to SAND members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings.